All Bones Considered, podcast number 10 for February 2020. Foal, F-O-A-L, Friends of Abraham Lincoln, Admiral John Dahlgren, Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren, and Bishop Matthew Simpson. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bella Kenwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 40 minutes or so and find out about some of our permanent residents, Admiral John Dahlgren, father of Naval Ordnance, and father of Ulrich Dahlgren of the infamous Dahlgren Affair during the Civil War, and Bishop Matthew Simpson, who delivered Lincoln's funeral oration in Springfield, Illinois. I'm Joe Lex, your host for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Philadelphian John Dahlgren knew what he wanted, and he went for it. He frequently achieved his goals by skipping the chain of command and going to the top. It annoyed his fellow sailors to no end, but it certainly didn't hurt that he was a close personal friend of Abraham Lincoln. His son Ulrich followed in his father's lead, although instead of the Navy, he made his name in the Army, making the rank of Colonel when he was 21. Ulrich's name is attached to one of the most infamous events of the Civil War. And Bishop Matthew Simpson was a giant of the 19th century American Methodist Church. Abraham Lincoln confided in him frequently, and they became close personal friends. The first two are buried at Laurel Hill, the latter at West Laurel Hill. I hope to give you some new information about Abraham Lincoln through his three friends in this February edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. When researching historical figures, I frequently run across people who are larger than life and had a sizable impact on American history, yet I had never heard of them before. That was certainly the case with Rear Admiral John Adolphus Bernard Dahlgren and his son, Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren. Both were good friends of President Abraham Lincoln the father more so than the son. John Dahlgren was born in Philadelphia in 1809 to Swedish immigrant Bernard, who had arrived in Philadelphia only a few years before, and married an Irish immigrant, Mary Rowan, R-O-W-A-N, in 1808. Bernard served as Swedish consul to the U.S. government. Now, since my middle name is Rowan, R-O-H-A-N, This immediately caught my attention as the name has undergone many alterations through the centuries. A year later, John's brother Charles Gustavus Ulrich Dahlgren was born. As a young man, he moved south and worked in Louisiana and Mississippi. 
When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Dahlgren raised two regiments of state-sponsored volunteer infantry, the 3rd and 7th Mississippi Infantry Regiments, by his own means to fight for the Confederacy. And he rose to the rank of Brigadier General in the Confederate Army. Charles is buried in Mississippi. Another brother, William Theodore, born in 1820, was the black sheep of the family. After an argument with his older brother John in 1842, he swore to never use the name Dahlgren again, and he changed his name to Derohan, D-E-R-O-H-A-N, a French variation on the Irish name, implying a connection to the House of Rowan in Strasbourg. William became a soldier of fortune. He fought in Russia, in Europe. He ended up fighting with Garibaldi for the unification of Italy. When the Civil War broke out in the United States, he was staunchly pro-Union, but he refused to enlist for fear that he might have to serve under his brother, who had risen in the ranks. William died poor. I cannot determine where he is buried. From childhood, John Dahlgren knew what he wanted, to be a naval hero in the same vein as Stephen Decatur, Isaac Hull, buried in Section G, Lot 241 and 243, and Elie Augustus Frederick Lavalette, buried in Section W, Lot 122 and 124. At the time, the only way to rise in the ranks was to be a hero in battle. Dahlgren unintentionally changed the rules. In 1826, Dahlgren achieved his early life dream of becoming a midshipman joining the steam generation of the U.S. Navy. Before 1815, the U.S. Navy was sail-driven. As steam developed, a post-1815 generation of sailors clamored for a modernization of the Navy to include steam and sails. For many years, Dahlgren sailed the seas, but there were no wars to fight and no opportunity for him to prove himself in battle. His fortune changed in 1834 when he was assigned to the United States Coastal Survey, then under the thumb of the amazing Swiss immigrant Ferdinand Hassler, buried at Laurel Hill in Section P, Lot 40. Under Hassler's watchful eye, Dahlgren learned the scientific method and proceeded to make a name for himself with his careful methodology, meticulous measurements, and writings accepted as gospel by many men senior in a rank. He took time in 1837 to marry Mary Clement Bunker, daughter of Nathan Bunker, one of the colonial settlers of Philadelphia. He and Mary had several children through the next few years. But John was limited to shore duty when his vision started to fail. He saw the best oculists in the country. They could offer little. In the fall of 1837, he requested leave to sail to Paris in order to be seen by one of the best oculists in the world. Hassler decided to take advantage and was to send Dahlgren a list of tasks, which John forgot. But while in France, he became interested in some new ordnance developed by Henri-Joseph Pixens, and he came home brimming with ideas. Dahlgren also purchased an 86-and-a-half-acre farm near Hartsville in Bucks County, where he raised his family. In 1842... John Dahlgren returned to active duty. His vision had improved either because of or despite treatment. Two years later was the USS Princeton disaster. 
Captain Robert Stockton had persuaded Congress to build the single-screw propelled steamer, and he was her captain. On February 28th, Stockton staged a gala event to show off the Princeton and her guns, especially the monstrous Peacemaker. When it was fired a third time on the Potomac voyage, the Peacemaker exploded, killing Secretary of State Abel Upshur, Secretary of the Navy Thomas Walker Gilmer, and four others. President Tyler, who was aboard, was uninjured, but the Navy's reputation was in tatters. Until this time, science was rarely used in the development of Navy ordnance. It was mostly knowledge passed down from master to apprentice, and little was known about the metallurgy involved to make reliable weapons. In 1845, Charles Morris took over this department and things changed. John Dahlgren was assigned to the Washington Navy Yard a short time later, and his experience while training under Hassler became paramount. Between 1847 and 1850, he invented and developed the gun that bears his name, the Dahlgren gun, using only scientific principles and careful experimentation. In 1853, Dahlgren published a book that every ordnance person in the world read, Naval Percussion Locks and Primers. In addition, his Dahlgren 9-inch gun was shown to last at least 1,000 firings, twice as many times as was expected from naval ordnance. Despite his superior armaments, there were doubters. The Navy had undergone a complete overhaul in 1845 and was reluctant to make changes again so quickly. In 1855, Dahlgren made friends with Percival Drayton at the Philadelphia Naval Yard. Drayton was appointed Chief of the Bureau of Navigation in late April 1865. He died later that year and is buried at Laurel Hill in Section G, Lot 249. In June of 1855, John's beloved wife Mary died at age 38. She was buried in the Bunker family plot at Laurel Hill, Section L, Lots 50 through 54, which Nicholas had purchased in December 1837 for $383.66, a huge plot of 657 square feet. This now became the Dahlgren family plot also. Dahlgren's life changed forever in April 1861, just as the war started, when he found himself in charge of the Washington Navy Yard. All his senior officers had resigned in order to go south and join the Confederate Navy. On March 9th, Dahlgren met Abraham Lincoln at a concert at the Navy Yard. They apparently struck up a friendship because a few days later, Lincoln showed up again unannounced just to talk, and again on the 18th. It turned out that Lincoln liked gadgets, and Dahlgren was the king of naval gadgets. Both men were teetotalers, but Lincoln now came almost weekly to sit drink coffee, smoke cigars, and discuss the events of the day with his new friend, John Dahlgren. And Lincoln's door at the White House was always open to his friend Dahlgren, much to the chagrin of many senior Navy officers and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells. The friendship paid off. John learned to jump the chain of command, a mortal sin to senior Naval officers. Dahlgren was only a commander, and several captains felt that they had the right to take over leadership of the Navy Yard. The president was firm, quote, The Yard shall not be taken from Dahlgren. 
He held it when no one else would, and now he shall keep it as long as he pleases. Unquote. On August 2nd, Congress amended the law so that Dahlgren could hold the post, even though only a commander. But Dahlgren was itching to get back to sea duty. That's where the true glory beckoned. In October 1862, he applied, quote, for command of the forces that are to attack Sumter and the other Charleston forts, end quote. Secretary Wells had already delivered this job to Rear Admiral Samuel Francis DuPont of the famed Delaware family. Despite not getting battle duty, Dahlgren felt that he too deserved promotion to Admiral and again used his friendship with Lincoln to press for it. President Lincoln told Navy Secretary Wells, quote, I am ready to sign Dahlgren's commission whenever you send it, end quote. And on February 27, 1863, the promotion showed up. He received the commission on March 11th. This set up yet another great jealousy among those who had been at sea for a majority of the war. Dahlgren became known as Lincoln's Admiral. On Sunday, June 21st, Dahlgren got word from Secretary Wells that he was now in sole command of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron, his dream job. His actions there are beyond the scope of this podcast. In March 1864, Dahlgren was called to the White House by his old friend Abraham Lincoln. John had last seen his son, 21-year-old Ulrich Dahlgren, in January. Now he was told by the president that his son had been killed during a failed raid on Richmond, Virginia. More about that in the next section of the podcast. Dahlgren was at sea on April 14, 1865, when an Army transport flying its flag at half-mast approached Dahlgren's flagship, bringing news that his friend Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. He ordered his ships to fly their colors at half-mast and to fire a gun every half-hour from sunrise to sunset, and he directed his officers to wear black crepe on the left arm. He wrote in his diary, quote, I can say from an intimate acquaintance with the president that he was a man of rare sagacity, good genial temper, desirable firmness, that he possessed qualities of the highest order as a ruler. Indeed, we know of no man so well fitted to carry the country through her trial. End quote. Admiral John Dahlgren's war was over. In 1864, Dahlgren had met Madeline Vinton Goddard, a widow with two children, who was a friend of his sister, Patty. She was a, quote, society star and novelist, end quote, who had published three books. They were married on August 2nd, 1865. Dahlgren wrote it in pencil in a margin of his diary. It was rumored that he had married her for her money. They started a second family. He was 56, she was 40. And on the morning of July 12, 1870, Dahlgren developed severe chest pain. He died a few minutes later. He was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Bunker family plot between his son and his first wife. As both Madeline and John Dahlgren wished, the Admiral's reputation long outlived him. The Navy honored him by giving his name to three ships, a building at the Naval Academy, a building and a street at the Washington Navy Yard, and a Naval Weapons Proving Ground in Virginia. A bust of Dahlgren clad in a toga now stands in Dahlgren Hall at the Naval Academy.
sometimes the smallest gravestones hold the biggest stories. Admiral John Dahlgren is buried between his first wife on his right and son Ulrich on his left. The Admiral's memorial is a large brass sign explaining his value to the Union Navy, worthy of his accomplishments. Ulrich's is easily missed, standing only inches above ground. Yet it is highly possible that Ulrich Dahlgren, who died in combat at age 21, changed the course of American history. Young Dahlgren was born in Bucks County on April 3, 1842. He grew up at the Washington Naval Shipyard, where naval cannons were his toys and active sailors, his early teachers and friends. He had free run of the Ordnance Department, and as an adolescent, he was already familiar with the model tools and weapons of war. His education was private. He became very well-read and articulate. He spent many hours at the Capitol Building, listening to speeches of legendary orators, such as Daniel Webster. He also became an expert boatman and swimmer. His father noted the intensity with which Ulrich approached everything he did, noting in his memoirs, it seemed as if he obeyed by instinct the scriptural injunction, whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. At age 16, he decided to become an engineer and to learn the profession on his own. He joined an uncle in Louisiana and learned surveying tracts of land, repairing levees, and administering the plantation. He also studied French and fencing. When nearly 18, he wrote home that he was prepared to earn his own livelihood by going further west. But John summoned him back to Washington, D.C. With the worsening political situation, his father worried that Ulrich would be caught in the Deep South when war broke out. He advised him instead to study law in Philadelphia, so he entered into study with another uncle. Despite missing the active outdoor life, Ulrich studied law during the day and took courses in geology at the Franklin Institute at night. By the end of January 1861, five states had withdrawn from the Union and all Southerners in the presidential cabinet had resigned. The next month, the states of the rebellion named their own president and cabinet. Washington, D.C., surrounded by Virginia and Maryland, was in a precarious position. There were fewer than 2,000 troops on hand to protect the Union capital. If captured by the enemy, the entire naval shipyard would have become a huge bonus for the Confederacy. Now, over the next few months, Ulrich had the opportunity to observe the president, the cabinet, and the highest Union military officials through his father. As I mentioned before, President Lincoln had become good friends with John Dahlgren, and teenager Ulrich would frequently tag along on the visits between the two friends. On May 29, 1862, at age 20, Ulrich gave a personal report to Lincoln about his observations of naval artillery units setting up defensive lines around Washington. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was present and was so impressed that he immediately granted Ulrich a direct commission as an aide-de-camp with the rank of captain. There is no doubt that he was commissioned out of favoritism. But Ulrich was a very good soldier, brave without being foolhardy. On his frequent visits to Washington, he found that he had become a set of President Lincoln's eyes and ears in the field. 
On battlefield after battlefield, he distinguished himself with honor as a fighter and a leader of men. At Gettysburg in July 1863, Ulrich asked for a small body of men to harass the enemy's rear columns as they retreated. On July 6th, he rode into Hagerstown, Maryland, just as a large rebel column came into town from a different direction. During the fierce battle, he took a bullet in the right foot. He continued fighting until he passed out from blood loss. Syrians removed the bullet and bone fragments and hoped for the best. Ulrich was returned home to Washington, where his many visitors included Abraham Lincoln. Ulrich was 21 years old. His condition worsened. He lapsed into a coma, and family feared the worse. Secretary Stanton promoted him to colonel, thinking he would never live to actually wear the eagles of his new rank. Surgeons finally agreed that the only hope for survival lay in amputating his leg below the knee. Despite the surgery, he lingered near death for two more days, and then he got better. He awoke enough to take the oath of his new rank and continued to improve. He was pronounced out of danger in August. Three months after the amputation, Ulrich was back in the saddle with a high-quality prosthesis and looking for yet another command, this time as the youngest colonel in the Union Army at age 21. On January 31, 1864, Ulrich went to the White House. He wrote to his father, quote, I called at the White House. Abe told me to come up soon. He would like to have a talk with me, end quote. The next day, he returned. He spent a long time with Lincoln while Lincoln was being shaved. It was the last time they would see each other. In mid-February, Ulrich heard of a mission being put together by Brigadier General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick, and he wanted in. Despite Kilpatrick's record of recklessness, his nickname was Kill Cavalry. The plan was to conduct a surprise attack on Richmond and free the 11,000 or so northern prisoners of war being held at Libby Prison. Union General Ulysses Grant had gotten word from one of his most reliable spies, Elizabeth Crazy Bet Van Lu, that the town was sparsely guarded and its capture would be easy. Elizabeth Van Lu is a fascinating character in history. Grant called her his most effective spy in the South. She had even managed to get one of her own slaves assigned maid duty at the Confederate White House and thus gain first-hand information that Grant could not get elsewhere. When Richmond fell the next year, Bet Van Loos was the first house in the city to refly the American flag. Her reward for all her work was to be appointed postmaster of Richmond, a lucrative position. Kilpatrick and Dahlgren confidently moved south, expecting victory and acclamation. Kilpatrick was determined that he would one day be president of the reunited states. Now, despite his amputation and fancy new prosthesis, Dahlgren still showed himself capable of outriding his men. On March 1st, Dahlgren and his troops passed the mansion of Confederate Secretary of War James A. Seddon. He decided to leave his calling card. Mrs. Seddon answered his knock with some trepidation. There was a very young man with a mustache and a goatee, leaning on a crutch and wearing the uniform of the enemy. But when Ulrich introduced himself, Mrs. Seddon smiled. Your little Ollie, I knew you as a boy, and I knew your father when I was one of your mother's schoolmates in Philadelphia. He was a beau of mine. 
They spent the afternoon drinking a bottle of 1844 Blackberry wine and discussing mutual acquaintances in Philadelphia. The war was not discussed. Now, unknown to Dahlgren, Kilpatrick had encountered resistance and already abandoned his mission. The next morning on March 2nd, Dahlgren and his troops failed to cross the James River as planned when inadvertently misled by an ex-slave turned bricklayer. The black man was hanged for his failed assistance. They found another crossing point and pressed on, only to be repulsed by local militia. Near Mattapike Hill, the Union troops fell into an ambush. When the skirmish ended, Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren lay face down in the rain and mud. He had not yet reached his 22nd birthday. A 13-year-old who lived nearby hoped to scavenge a gold watch from one of the dead Union troopers. Now, he claimed to found a cigar case and some papers, which meant nothing to him since he could barely read. He took them to his schoolmaster. He also mentioned the man had a wooden leg. Other soldier scavengers stripped his clothing, stole his leg, and even cut off his little finger for a ring that he wore in memory of his sister. Ulrich Dahlgren's body was dumped into a shallow grave awaiting repatriation. But the papers found by the 13-year-old made their way up the chain and changed the course of the war. On March 5th, the Richmond Daily Dispatch told the story. According to orders, quote, signed by U. Dahlgren, unquote, his troops were not only to capture the capital and release prisoners from Libby prison, they were to destroy the city and assassinate President Jefferson Davis and his entire cabinet. Colonel Dahlgren now became Ulrich the Hun, and the face of war changed. Citizens, even high-ranking politicians, were not involved in the fighting to this point. They were not to be involved. Kidnapping, yes. Assassination was unheard of. And when confronted up north, Generals Meade and Grant and President Lincoln denied any plans of assassination. This became what is called the Dahlgren Affair, and it fired flames even further between the North and the South. Admiral Dahlgren was beside himself. All he wanted was for his son's remains to be returned to Philadelphia where they could be properly interred. But the remains kept migrating. First, Ulrich was buried in the shallow grave near where he was killed. Then his remains were removed to Richmond, where he was viewed by numerous people. Some reports even say that he was put on display in a drugstore. Others say it was just his leg that was put on display. But people did note there was a gunshot wound to his forehead. Now, the protocol was to send bodies of Union officers home, but Jefferson Davis gave explicit instructions to make an exception in this case. The next day, the body was conveyed to Oakwood Cemetery and reburied without ceremony. A dog's burial, according to Jefferson Davis. The colored gravediggers were sent away so that the disgraced occupant of the unmarked grave would remain anonymous until, quote, the Trump of doom, end quote, as the Richmond papers crowed. However, one of the gravediggers, curiosity excited, watched the burial from the woods and deduced that it was Dahlgren, as there had been much talk of how to dispose of the war criminal's remains. Now, there was one more stop on the way north. On April 6th, the gravediggers were paid a handsome sum to once again dig up Ulrich, and he was moved to the farm of a Union sympathizer. 
It took about 16 months, but with the help of Elizabeth Van Loo, Ulrich's body was recovered on a moonless night in enemy territory. He was positively ID'd by palpation. The coffin was opened. One of the recovery people felt around inside to make sure the corpse was missing a leg and a little finger. Detectives were also able to recover Dahlgren's pocket watch and ring along with his coat, pierced by four bullet holes. His prosthesis and his little finger were not recovered. Ulrich's previously amputated leg had proceeded him north. It ended up at the naval yard and was interred in the wall of a foundry that stood across from what is now Dahlgren Park. There is a wall plaque that states, quote, within this wall is deposited the leg of Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren, USV, wounded July 6th, 1863, while skirmishing in the streets of Hagerstown with the rebels after the Battle of Gettysburg. The Dahlgren Foundry, as it was known, was torn down in 1915 and replaced with a metal fabrication shop known as Building 28. Purportedly, the leg was left in situ and the plaque remained. Building 28 was itself torn down and replaced in 1942, which was in turn replaced by the current structure in 1998, a parking garage known as Building 28. There was no mention of the leg, but the plaque is still there. There are two rumors. One simply says that when Ulrich's body came through Washington on its way back to Philadelphia, the leg and the body were reunited in the casket. We do not have paperwork confirming this in the archives at Laurel Hill Cemetery. The other rumor is that Ulrich Dahlgren stalks the ground of the Navy Yard on many nights searching for his missing leg. Building 28 was in the news in 2013. It was here that Aaron Alexis parked his car before beginning the rampage that left 12 workers dead as well as himself. A final footnote to this story is the disposition of the wooden leg that Dahlgren was wearing when killed. It was apparently not returned to his family along with the body. It was later said that one of John Mosby's rangers, himself missing a leg, took ownership and owned it for many years. An article in the Bennington, Vermont Evening Banner of September 18, 1922, indicates that Captain John Ballard, quote, probably will carry it with him to his grave. The prosthetic leg thus served both sides during the Civil War. Dahlgren's body finally reached Washington, D.C. in June 1865, after the war had ended and his friend Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. But it was a blisteringly hot summer, and the family was forced to wait four more months before interring Ulrich's remains in the bunker plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Prior to burial, his casket lay in state at Independence Hall. The last person to receive that honor was his friend, Abraham Lincoln. It is now thought that the Dahlgren papers were forgeries. The orders were not in Dahlgren's handwriting. They were signed U. Dahlgren, spelled D-A-L-H-G-R-E-N, a misspelling of his last name and an abbreviation instead of his full name. Admiral John Dahlgren said that his son would never sign his son that way. He was proud of his first name and always used his full first name when signing official papers. There is much controversy even now about who really wrote the Dahlgren papers. One thing is certain, the rules suddenly changed. 
if the North was so barbaric as to consider the assassination of civilian politicians, then the South felt it could do the same. One of the people who realized this was a Southern sympathizer who was one of the top actors of his day. He had been planning to kidnap Abraham Lincoln and exchange him for 100,000 Confederate prisoners to prolong the war. Now his plan changed, as assassination was now acceptable. John Wilkes Booth carried out his plan in Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865. If you're a Philadelphian, I'll bet that you, like me, have probably driven past it dozens, if not hundreds, of times. There's a statue standing outside of Simpson House on Belmont Avenue near Fairmount Park. It's been there since 1902. Slightly intimidating, a man in a long frock coat has his right hand raised, and he is obviously trying to make a point. The man is Reverend Matthew Simpson, And the point he might be making is, I was Abraham Lincoln's very good friend. You probably don't know that Belmont Drive in front of Simpson House, a retirement community named for the Reverend and developed by his wife, was not the statue's originally intended location. When the outcome of the Civil War was clear, and its cessation only a matter of time, a group of individuals organized to enlist public support to erect a commemorative monument to President Lincoln in Washington. Senator James Harlan, a Methodist, was one of the leaders in this effort. They proposed to build a three-tiered edifice on the top of which a statue of Lincoln would be placed. Representative figures from the church, state, military, etc., who had been associated with the president were to grace the two lower tiers. Bishop Simpson and Henry Ward Beecher, pastor of the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, New York, were selected to represent the church. Each figure on the monument was to be of heroic size and cast in bronze taken from Civil War cannons. Sculptor Clark Mills, who is today probably best known for the equestrian statue of Andrew Jackson in Lafayette Park across from the White House in Washington, was commissioned to do the statue of Simpson. Mills made several trips from his home in Washington to Philadelphia, where Bishop Simpson sat for him. In time, a full-size model was completed, and Clark was paid the handsome fee of $1,500. From the onset, there was opposition to the project. After the tragic death of Lincoln, there was strong objection to the proposed form of the monument. One writer, nameless but preserved in the bishop's scrapbook, spoke for many when he wrote, quote, If it is necessary to the paying of due honor to Abraham Lincoln that he should be surrounded by the statues of distinguished living personages, then the selections that have been made are as good as any others. But there is no such need. Abraham Lincoln stood alone in life, and he should stand alone in death. He was great not by virtue of what he borrowed from Stanton or Simpson or Seward or Grant or anyone else, but simply by virtue of his own strong individualities and his own great work." Only three of those statue models were completed, those of Simpson, Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton, and Secretary of State William Seward. And of course the project was never consummated. In 1883, Clark Mills died, and the models, which had remained in his studio for almost 20 years, were put up for sale. 
The Secretary of War, Robert Lincoln, son of the president and close friend of the Simpson family, learned that the statues were to be offered for public sale, and he notified Simpson's widow, Ellen. She and the family purchased the model, which was then shipped to Philadelphia. It reassembled at a local marble yard by one of Mills' sons, who was also a sculptor. There is no indication of the price paid by the family. But by 1902, Friends of Simpson had raised enough money to cast the statue in bronze and to erect it on the grounds of the home near Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. So who was Matthew Simpson? What was his relation to the martyred Lincoln? A relationship which would make him a candidate for a place of honor in the Lincoln Memorial. The nature of this association has for years been the subject of more fancy than fact. For example, one of his biographies alleges that Simpson inspired the Emancipation Proclamation. George W. Childs, the prominent Philadelphia publisher buried at Laurel Hill on Millionaire's Row, Section K, Plot 337, characterized Simpson as, quote, President Lincoln's most intimate personal friend, end quote. This is probably an exaggeration of what was nonetheless a warm friendship. Matthew Simpson was born in Cadiz, Ohio in 1811, the grandson of a Revolutionary War veteran. He was converted to Christ in 1829 and studied medicine from 1830 to 1833. He began a medical practice, but his feelings of religion were too powerful and he quickly switched to the ministry. In 1935, he married Ellen Holmes Werner of Pittsburgh. He was ordained as an elder in 1837. He was 26 years old. And in 1839, he was made president of the newly established Asbury University, now DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. In 1848, he became editor of the Western Christian Advocate. He was made a bishop in May 1852 at age 41. In 1859, he moved to Evanston, Illinois, where he accepted the position of president of the Garrett Biblical Institute. And in 1863, he accepted the position of Bishop of the Philadelphia area, becoming one of the most powerful Methodist ministers in the country. He was noted for his powerful oratory, often leaving his audiences in awe and tears. Simpson met Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois, sometime between 1839 and 1848. The exact date is unknown, when he was president of Indiana Asbury College. By the time Lincoln was elected president in 1860, the two were close enough for Simpson to be at Lincoln's home in Springfield to see his friend depart for his inauguration in Washington, D.C. This association continued in Washington, where Simpson was a regular visitor to the White House. On another occasion, Simpson is reported to have urged Lincoln to appoint Secretary of War Edwin Stanton as Chief Justice of the United States. Simpson is credited with getting James Harlan, whom I mentioned above, appointed Secretary of the Interior. Harlan was both a Methodist and a former student of Simpson's at Indiana Asbury. He was elected to the United States Senate from Iowa in 1855 and re-elected in 1860. And his daughter married Robert Todd Lincoln. Matthew Simpson was known by others to be close to Lincoln and was frequently implored by them to bring specific messages to the president. Soon he got the nickname, quote, High Priest of the Radical Republicans, end quote. 
when the Civil War started, Simpson was a fervent abolitionist and a strong union man and helped his denomination take a leading role in providing chaplains, volunteers, and civilian support for the war effort. While he was among several people who encouraged Lincoln to present the Emancipation Proclamation, he was certainly not the only one. The bishop was useful to the president in many ways. One was as a barometer of public opinion. Few persons traveled as widely around the nation, even to California and Oregon, as did Bishop Simpson in the course of making speeches and presiding at district conferences of Methodists. Mr. Lincoln also appreciated Bishop Simpson's non-religious views. Quote, it was well known that the president occasionally sent for the bishop in order to procure information about the affairs of the nation, end quote, said fellow Methodist minister Thomas Bowman. The president said in substance, Bishop Simpson is a wise and thoughtful man. He travels extensively over the country and sees things as they are. He has no axe to grind, and therefore I can depend upon him for such information as I need. And when Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, Simpson was selected to deliver the eulogy in Springfield, and he remained close to the family. Here's a quote from the eulogy. As to his religious experience, I cannot speak definitely because I was not privileged to know much of his private sentiments. My acquaintance with him did not give me the opportunity to hear him speak on these topics. This I know, however, he read the Bible frequently, loved it for its great truths, and he tried to be guided by its precepts. He believed in Christ the Savior of sinners. I think he was sincere in trying to bring his life into harmony with the principles of revealed religion. Certainly, if there ever was a man who illustrated some of the principles of pure religion, that man was our departed president. Often did he remark to friends and to delegations that his hope for our success rested in his conviction that God would bless our efforts because we were trying to do right." End quote. After the war, the Methodist church women of Philadelphia, who were noted for giving care to the sick and wounded from the battlefields, now turned their attention to care for the aged. And the Methodist Episcopal Home for the Aged was started on Belmont Avenue with the help of the bishop. Eventually, it was renamed Simpson House. Simpson continued to travel and to speak, visiting Europe and Mexico several times. He died quietly in his sleep at home at 1334 Arch Street on June 18, 1884. He is interred in a mausoleum at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Highland Section, Plot 1, along with his wife and several family members. Next time in the March edition of All Bones Considered, it's She Invented What? When allowed to flourish in the 19th century, many women came up with amazing inventions. Mary Engle Pennington was a botanist, refrigeration engineer, and inventor of at least one item you have in your refrigerator right now. Martha Coston, widowed at 21 with four children, took over her husband's business with incendiaries and pyrotechnics and created the Coston Flare, still used for night communications among ships at sea. And Rachel Holloway Lloyd was the first woman in the United States to earn a Ph.D. in chemistry.
Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bella Kinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October, and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year. Or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your own way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Thank you. I had many, many resources for John Dahlgren. First and foremost, Robert J. Schneller, Jr., A Quest for Glory, a biography of Rear Admiral John A. Dahlgren, Naval Institute Press, Annapolis, Maryland, 1996. Then there's Peter C. Lubke, editor, The Autobiography of Rear Admiral John A. Dahlgren, Naval Heritage and History Command, Washington Navy Yard, D.C., 2018. Finally, Dahlgren, Madeline Vinton, Memoir of John A. Dahlgren, Rear Admiral, United States Navy, Boston, James R. Osgood and Company, 1882. My references for Ulrich Dahlgren, the first and foremost is by Dwayne Schultz, The Dahlgren Affair, Terror and Conspiracy in the Civil War. W.W. Norton and Company, New York, London, 1998. I highly recommend this book. It covers the entire plan with many, many further details on Brigadier General Hugh Kill Cavalry Kilpatrick, Crazy Bet Van Lu, and others. There are a few minor errors. I'm not a, I'm not a big Civil War scholar, but even I picked these up. Um, Secretary of Navy Sumner Wells rather than Gideon Wells. Sumner Wells was, of course, in the um, Franklin Roosevelt cabinet many years later. Um, buried at North Hill Cemetery rather than North Laurel Hill Cemetery. Despite this, it's a terrific book. It actually sort of reads like a movie script. I was casting the different characters as I read it. There's an article by Joseph George Jr. called Black Flag Warfare, Lincoln and the Raids Against Richmond and Jefferson Davis. It was published in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, Volume 115, Number 3, July 1991, pages 291 to 318. Finally, again, the father and the stepmother decided they had to do their own story of Ulrich's life. So Rear Admiral Dahlgren and Madeline Vincent Dahlgren wrote Memoir of Ulrich Dahlgren. 
It was Philadelphia J.B. Lippincott and Company, 1872. It is free, available online from Google Books, if you check it out. Again, Memoir of Ulrich Dahlgren. For more on Bishop Simpson, I suggest James E. Kirby, The Bishop Who Almost Stood with Lincoln, The Methodist History, October 1968, pages 40 to 47. Dr. Horace Greeley Smith, The Life of Matthew Simpson, also Methodist History, although I don't have a date on that one. And finally, Almer M. Pennywell, The Methodist Movement in Northern Illinois, The Sycamore Tribune, Sycamore, Illinois, 1942.